The Tom Woods Show, episode 1600. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. No matter who you are, this message is directed at you. You're overwhelmed with email. You don't know how to handle it. You can never stay on top of it. What do you do? You use SaneBox, which will help manage your email and get you your sanity back. Visit SaneBox.com slash Woods today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X.com slash Woods. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. Amity Schlaes is back with us once again. She is the author of numerous books, including The Forgotten Man, that great book about the 1930s, the New Deal period. We're going to talk today about her brand new book, Great Society, A New History. She is also the, we'll talk at the end about it, the chairman of the Coolidge Foundation. Amity, welcome back. Glad to be here. You take on these enormous projects that we all know need to be done. Just nobody has the energy to do them except you. So I'm glad you're still cranking them out, particularly the Great Society. You know, there have been a number of books on the New Deal that have been critical, have been somewhat revisionist in their uh, analysis and their assessment of the New Deal. Yours, I think, had a lot more personality, a lot more depth and detail and anecdotal material. But with the Great Society, I think there's a real dearth of material. It's very surprising. I mean, I guess Myron Magnet did a sort of a book on it, but it, it wasn't really very systematic. It's very hard to find a critical look at the Great Society, which I suppose is partly why you did it. Well, yes, and authors stand on the shoulders of other authors. So I want to give credit to those who went before me. One is uh, John Cogan, who wrote A History of Entitlements, which has plenty of 60s in it, showing the crazy expansion by Richard Nixon, for an example. Unbelievable, you know, things you didn't expect that Richard Nixon would be a great society type spender, but he really was. There's a professor named Alan Matuso who wrote a book called A Nixon's Economy and another book called The Unraveling of America that were fantastic, That's a good one. but they're very old. Yeah, The Unraveling is really good. And I don't think he's, I don't think, my sense ideologically is that he's mainstream. Alan? Yeah, am I right? Uh, I I don't know him. I think, uh, I don't know him, but what his book says, what my book says, he might be a Democrat, I might be more conservative, but... Uh, you know, I think actually I might be a Republican, but either, but the two of us have basically the same interpretation of the period, which is that the Great Society, Lyndon Johnson's program, was too ambitious and too vainglorious. It, it wanted to do something and it told itself it could too often without looking at results. So, so, so I recommend these other books. I tried to tell the story anew as I found it. I'm, I'm very, very curious about the history of American cities and uh, economists kind of sometimes have a foot in that area, sometimes not. Um, what made urban renewal? Uh, why was it so devastating for cities? So I, I do also get into that a lot, Tom. There's so, so much here. All right, let's start with the basics. In a nutshell, what does Lyndon Johnson have in mind? Not where does he get the ideas from and who's influencing him, but when he gives a speech about the Great Society, what exactly does he have in mind? Some people just think it's a welfare program or two, but it's much more ambitious than that. He wanted just what he, he says. He wants the country to go from good, and it was pretty good beginning of the 60s, to great. 
where poverty is cured. That's part of it. He had uh, three areas, cities, countryside, classroom. He was going to revolutionize. And he did. As a colleague of his, Joe Califano, said, we are living in Lyndon Johnson's America. Whether it's Medicare, our college financial aid subsidy problem, Medicaid, special ed, it goes on and on like that. All of the institutions we work with, except the plain vanilla social security, are those institutions created as part of that impulse to make America great. Now, I want to know, you start off your book uh, with some interesting material. Uh, You've got a section on the new left and the Port Huron statement from back in 1962. Now, I don't want to talk about the Kennedy years just because of the limited time. I want to get right into Lyndon Johnson. But what's the new left and what's their connection, if any, to the great society? My sense is that as time went on, whatever the original architects thought, uh, or at least, let's say, the more mainstream architects uh, imagined themselves to be doing, by the end of the 60s, you have a message coming out that welfare is something... Maybe this is even where the word entitlement came from. It's something that you are entitled to. This is not charity. This is something you're owed in justice. And they, they organize people to to sit in and overwhelm the bureaucracies in these places so that the bureaucrats just give up and concede and give everybody uh, the checks that they wanted with their names written on them. And I rather suspect that has a bit of the new left's fingerprints on it. Yes, well, the new left grew up. What's interesting about the new left who wrote the Port Huron statement in Michigan, and that's kind of legend for the left. A bunch of young people go to Port Huron, Michigan, and, you know, sit under the moonlight and write their own independent statement, which becomes a manifesto for a generation. You've seen references to that. What I learned when I looked at this was the Port Huron statement and the event at Port Huron in little rustic cabins by the lake was sponsored by the United Auto Workers. That is, it wasn't quite such an independent, came out of nowhere group. This is, um, the Port Huron group became Students for a Democratic Society, were Students for a Democratic Society. Some of them became weathermen, you know, if you go all the way, um, became anarchists and violent. So um, what was that? Well, what it was, was sensible unions, more or less, wishing, longing for a youth wing. And saying it was kind of a, a what's the word, uh, an abdication of power to younger generations. There's so many uh, younger people, uh, let them rule, let's worship youth. And how does that relate to entitlement? There was a, I mean, I like to trace the cases, Tom, and this, what did the Supreme Court say? Because that's where it came from more than any individual youth. There was a young uh, lawyer and law professor named Charles Reich who, or Reich, some Americans say, um, who invented a new concept of property. It sounds very much like something someone would say today. Let's turn notions of property on their head because we feel like it. And let's say if you have a patent, that's your property. And if I have welfare, that's my property. And they're the same. And it's owed to me. And therefore, I'm entitled to my welfare payments. That's an entitlement. And yes, the language did shift. And Entitlement became a word around this time. So there were cases, um, including especially one called Goldberg v. Kelly, that began to move towards treating government payments as entitlements and property. Um, And that was kind of true by, you know, the early 70s. Suddenly, welfare was property. That's a a true revolution in American thought, I would argue, uh, 
not a great road to head down. Um, the idea that payments by the government are your property and certainly created a constituency which made welfare much harder to undo. So does that answer the question? And in the background, there were, were the unions in the story. Very often, unions are supposed to stand for work, but basically advancing the notion of a social democratic society as benign. It wasn't benign. Um, it might have appeared benign at the time to say welfare is an entitlement, but it's it, or um, everyone's entitled to health care. But as we see now, uh, our government can't really afford this. That's very interesting stuff because I actually did not know the link between labor and Port Huron until I read what you wrote. And then, of course, what they wound up creating seems to have gotten a little bit out of their control. I want to talk about one aspect of the Great Society, that, uh, namely uh, education, because last night, or as we're recording this, last night in the Democratic debate, I heard probably Elizabeth Warren talking about wanting to spend many hundreds of billions of dollars and pour that money into schools in low-income areas. And I just had a sense of deja vu because I felt like, okay, that's been, I'm pretty sure, done repeatedly over and over. And I don't think with particularly impressive results. I could be wrong about that. But my instinct on this has always been, I think I could do a pretty good job just with chalk and a chalkboard. That really doesn't actually cost that much money. It really doesn't. No. Uh, these days, there's this no, no. sense that everybody has to have a tablet and whatever. I don't think that makes any big difference. So what can you tell us about that aspect of it? Um, well, nothing is new. It's just forgotten, right? It, it, no, no idea is new. It's what it only feels new because we forgot we had it before as a country collectively, and also in in sartorial, in fashion too. Nothing is new. Pleats, they're just forgotten. Let's try pleats again. And it's sort of like that. Um, the education spending of the period was immense. It started even before Johnson with the missile scare, the rocket scare, October sky, we saw the Soviets had satellites, Sputnik, we need to improve our STEM. They didn't call it STEM, but that's basically what they were saying. Um, and we began to spend first for colleges then for high schools. Uh, Johnson really got us into the K through 12 business, which was historically um, more of a local project, K through 12. That's what states and towns are for, K through 12. So first, the universities, um, and writ broad, what you see is that, or seen broadly, what you see is the more money the government throws into higher ed, the more higher ed sticker price rises. That's a kind of rule. So yeah. if you are wondering why college uh, this year for many kids and many people do pay the sticker price is $75,000, you can blame the great society because, of course, the universities, you know, just they, they didn't want to cheapen what college costs for, for the upper middle class. So they would just, you know, raise the tuition. They were less interested in um, making ends meet. So I would say the great society put universities in la-la land where they began to have that country club aspect and they had the climbing wall and they had the comfort animals and all that without descending to caricature, very often universities waste money on non-necessary items. And where could that money go instead? So this whole idea of spend, let's spend lots of money on education, it will be better, whether it's a climbing wall or, as you say, an iPad, I, I share your skepticism. And that culture came out of the 60s. LBJ was a school teacher. 
he came out of being a school teacher and then a college, you know, he attended a, a small college in Texas. Education saved him, but we want to remember that LBJ only had a book and a pencil. He did it without an iPad. He did it without a whole lot of um, fringe benefits to his attendance at university. He saw that the main thing was learning to read. And today, um, well, as we all know, you know, people, more people can read, but those who read well don't read better than people who read well in the 60s. That is to say, a college enterer reads less well than teachers expect. Um, SAT scores have not gone up the way they should relative to the investment we made in education. You know, of course, your book, just as with your previous ones, gets us into a kind of storytelling mode because you're not just a you're not a policy wonk who's, who focuses entirely on the text of the legislation and then the the results and this and that that's in there but we also learn some interesting there's texture to the story we learn about the people involved and the process and how these things actually took place but yet i i still do want to focus a bit more if we may on specifics and on intentions versus results because another major book on this uh, topic at least implicitly on this topic of course is charles murray's book losing ground now, it's not just on the on the Great Society, but he made the argument, controversial at the time, still controversial today, that the liberalization of, let's see, it was, uh, they don't have an AFDC anymore. Was it America, Families of Dependent Children? I forget, forget the name because they yeah. changed it later on. But his argument was the liberalization of this made it more desirable to be. Uh, poor, to be in a single-parent household, and so therefore people on the margin tended to do these things, and this had very bad consequences for children. Well, I've followed up with Charles Murray on that uh, because I've heard on the left, they say the social science literature just doesn't bear that out. And I asked him, so what's your opinion on that today? And he said, I just haven't kept up with it. So I don't know anything about that. Do, do you have a, an assessment of that? Well, yes. In fact, the Trump administration itself is claiming we won um, the war on poverty. And by some measures, we did. Um, in the, if you look in the economic report of the president, uh, fewer people are starving. What is poverty? Starving, no house, right? And fewer people are starving, but I would say many more people are anesthetized. <laughs> so you have a kind of... Um, nation on the oxycontin of some kind of federal aid. Uh, and that is a problem because, you know, there's nothing wrong with SNAP, with food stamps, but there is something wrong, you know, there's nothing even wrong with you or I expecting food stamps if we're very poor and it's a bad year. There is something wrong, even people on food stamps can agree, with expecting that your children and grandchildren will also be getting food stamps because that means your family doesn't have a good future. So that's the kind of attitude we have now, and that's a direct result of us spending too much and in training people to their own detriment, infantilizing people through these programs. Um, why is that? Why did we do that? Why would we ever do that? So I believe any people want independence, any group, any, any group. So, yeah, so if you go to page 432 of the economic report of the president, 
you'll see the Trump administration saying we had success in the war on poverty. People aren't starving anymore. Great. But I, I um, would take a different emphasis. I would say, but a lot more people are permanently in shackled, shackled um, by their acceptance of dependence for themselves and their children. I learned about, actually, before we get into that, let's pause very quickly for a brief message. Folks, virtually everybody I know is overwhelmed by email. We're so inundated by it that we've given up actually being able to answer all of it. We just want to answer the most important ones and then just hope everything somehow works out. That's where SaneBox comes in. SaneBox is like an EMT for your email. As messages flow in, SaneBox does the triage for you. It sifts only the important emails in your inbox, directs all the other distracting stuff into your Sane Later folder, so you know what messages to pay attention to now and what you can get to later on. It also has the Sane Black Hole, where you can drag messages from annoying people and never hear from those people again. And the old man here, let's just say, as a podcast host, hears from people like that from time to time. You can also receive sane reminders to ping you if someone hasn't replied to your email by a certain date. And best of all, you can use SaneBox with any email client or phone anywhere you check your email. So see how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com woods today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot slash woods. I learned a lot of names in this book of people I hadn't known before, actors, uh, some major, some minor in the great society drama. But there is a name that I was quite familiar with that I'd like to talk a bit about here, and that's Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And he's somebody I've seen people across the spectrum find very interesting. I have a friend, well, David Stockman knows him very well and, and, and was very close to him. And David Stockman is not in any way on the left. And Moynihan is not easily pigeonholed because he certainly wasn't on the hard left, but he was no right winger either. And he had at least a a hand in some of this, at least in terms of of a warning. So what's the story behind him? Well, Moynihan is a lovely intelligence. Someone said if he'd been airlifted out of his time, he was a depression child. Uh, And back to the 18th century, he would have been one of the framers. He would have said, you can have a republic if you can keep it like Benjamin Franklin. He would have improve the Constitution. He's been compared to Edmund Burke by Greg, uh, he says Greg Weiner, um, who's a professor in Connecticut. And there's something to that. What is it that Moynihan has in common with Burke? He says, well, government is imperfect. So what? I'm going to stick around to improve it. I'm going to learn from experience. Burke supported one revolution. He didn't support another. I'm going to be pragmatic, look at results, and do what works for the polity. I'm not embarrassed to say I'm from the government because government has done many good things. And this is a very likable, likable intelligence. You know. And I'm not afraid to admit when I'm wrong. So um, if you shift metaphors, Tom, you can think of a Shakespeare play where there's a character who's about to be led off to be beheaded, but right before his beheading, he gets... 20 lines where he can say what's going on and utter some wisdom, and he does. And he kind of steps outside the play and comments on what's wrong uh, with Richard III, say. And that little genius moment before the beheading, that's Moynihan. He was often beheaded. That is, he would have a good or well-intentioned project and he'd pay for it and be ousted. But he was always willing to speak the truth, even at cost to himself. And that's enormously attractive in a human 
Um, so he's sort of both the wise, he's the wise, a wise narrator at times in my book, but he's also a wise fool and certainly a casualty. What do I mean by that? Um, in, he, he said, oh, we did something. We didn't mean to get the outcome that results from, from what we did. Maybe we should alter what we do so we don't repeat such error. Um, an example would be he was involved in writing Executive Order 10988, which was the law encouraging public sector unions for the federal government, which seemed very benign, particularly because 10988 did not say public sector unions may strike violently against the federal government. It, it, strike was not allowed. So Moynihan thought this was no problem, but it gave um, more militant unions much more authority in the federal government and enabled them to force wages up way above what the government could afford to pay. And then in addition, set a precedent for state, county, and local and teachers unions to go from being sort of mild associations to unions who demanded wages that were, or particularly compensation that was out of line. And so you can blame today's pension crises of the states in part on a junior labor department official named Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He realized that, you know, he realized um, that when he pushed for some kinds of welfare because he was around for the original war on poverty. Liz Moynihan said in the beautiful documentary that's made that some of the initial poverty law, which is called the um, Economic Opportunity Act, was written over spaghetti in her house. Um, Moynihan pretty quickly saw what was wrong with the poverty spending, which is that it was more about inputs than outputs, and that it was very heavy towards social workers which what Moynihan called feeding the horses to feed the sparrows. You're feeding the social work establishment instead of the beneficiaries. He tried to shift with the concept of guaranteed income. What's wrong with guaranteed income is if you really do guarantee someone a lot of income, he will stay home. You know, the relative attraction of work is diminished if there's a payment in home. That's why we don't use the word dole because that's what the original dole did. So there you are. He was both participant in the folly that was the Great Society and also one of its wisest uh, observers. I think maybe the reputation he has depends very heavily on the so-called Moynihan Report. Do you have an assessment of that? Yes, of course. I didn't even get into that because what I found was there was so, I mean, in this conversation, there was so much else about Moynihan, for example. Yeah, and everybody just knows the Moynihan Report. So why just rehash that? Right, so I will will answer about the Moynihan Report, but I want to point out one other thing. You know there's a new directive, a new idea to have a directive from the federal government to return to classical architecture. Why do we have such ugly buildings? Why do we have the HUD building, which is an abomination, the brutalist architecture of Marcel Breuer? Why do we have the FBI building? Why do certain airports look the way they look? It's in part because of Moynihan. He wrote a memo from the federal government, guidelines on federal architecture, that said we have to respect, I'm oversimplifying, but essentially said we have to respect architects since they're experts in beauty. And what was popular then among architects was modern international style and brutalism. So the architect counsels the government that um, cupolas are old-fashioned and big concrete blocks are cool. And the government likes the concrete blocks because they're cool and modern and, by the way, cheaper. And it builds an abomination like HUD, which Jack Kemp termed um, multiple floors of basement. <laughs> you feel like you're in the basement even when you're on the top floor. It's so hideous. Talking about the, um, the HUD building in Washington. 
getting to the topic of race, which is Moynihan himself came from a broken family. He had no dads slash multiple dads. He came from an alcoholic family. So he knew all about family pathology and what a deterrent it was to social advancement. He lucked out. He pushed his way out, a combo of luck and perseverance, managed to attend college first at night. The Navy put him through graduate school. He emerged as a great intellect. He wanted that to happen to more and more Americans. And he observed, particularly that Black Americans in cities were struggling. At first, he proposed, let's have the post office deliver twice a day instead of once, and we'll employ all people who are poor, especially Black youth, for whom youth unemployment was already egregious in the 60s. But then he also noted that part of the problem was the family. The, the young men didn't have someone at home to tell them how life worked. And that was something that maybe ought to be addressed differently, whether by the government or the family, we don't know. But he said the case for national action on the family, and he related this directly, the Black struggle to in slavery and the time when the dad would be pulled away to work on another plantation, maybe even in another state. We displaced, we, the United States, we, you know, um, we, the boats that took the people in the Middle Passage, we displaced these families and tore them apart from the time they came to the United States in shackles. And we don't want to keep displacing them and encourage um, single families through welfare, which we did at the time. Um, so he writes this nice report, The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. And he expects everyone to say, good job, Pat, including his black friends, of which he had many. Instead, they they hanged him. He was the first person to be, I've ever heard of in my studies, to be canceled in the way you see today, to be charged with cultural appropriation. How could he understand what a black went through because he was Irish American? And he said, well, I don't see a difference. Um, and he was hung out to dry. He, uh, he, you know, went back to Wesleyan and then to Harvard. And there was even an academic conference hosted in Washington on civil rights where a government official nastily said, I I've been advised that there's no such person as Daniel Patrick Moynihan exists. Um, that is, he's so divisive, we don't even want to refer to his work. And that Moynihan was like Charles, the early Charles Murray. So, um, but Moynihan was not wrong and he was loving. You know, you have to ask whether people are doing things out of hate or love. And Moynihan loved his fellow men. He didn't see much difference among races. He, he saw problems that could be solved and he fought to solve those problems. What an amazing guy. I don't agree with a lot of what he did, but what an amazing guy. And so he's kind of a hero in my book. So is Walter Ruther, the leader of the United Auto Workers. And you'd think, well, Amity disapproves of unions. I do because I think they become they come between the employer and his worker to the detriment of the worker and the employer. But um, Walter Ruther, UAW leader, and then the United Auto Workers were mighty um, was were mighty, was an honest man who really believed in social democracy, just as many of our friends do today. And his story in this book is the story of the failure of social democracy. Tragically, Ruther actually went, he built a little social democratic rest center, you know, sort of a retreat for workers in the woods of Michigan. And tragically, his plane crashed when he was going to visit it. And that was an apt metaphor for the nature of his social democratic work. The United States cannot afford social democracy. We're too diverse for social democracy. 
And this great society idea of making the whole country social democratic was folly. So I, I do follow Ruther and I like him. I mean, one thing about the people in the 60s, as many of the socialists now, is they're lovable people because they mean well. They just happen to be wrong. All right. So that actually is something I wanted to ask you about. Are we really reduced to saying that these were all lovely people with perfectly good intentions and unfortunately things just unexpectedly went wrong? I mean, it's, it just seems like an anticlimactic conclusion. Is that really it? Well, you have to learn from it and not repeat it. I'm not going to damn them because we're all, you know, we're all capable of error, but I wouldn't recommend repeating their policy. So I, I think this is an appeal to common sense. Certain things didn't work before. Let's remember what they were and then form our own opinion. And any common sense person would then form a reasonable opinion. Our failure, Tom, is that we failed to educate a generation of young people through our own laziness. That is, I'm speaking generally. I don't know how old you are, but I'm speaking of people my age who uh, were children in the 60s, say. We failed to recognize how strong the left's hold upon education would become. We failed to understand the importance of the public sector union and Moynihan's error and what it would do to teacher mentality, which is to come to believe that government was everything. We failed to recognize that. We failed to fight it. And as a result, our education allowed these young people to actually believe in socialism, which is absurd. So so what can we do now to counter that? I, I think so the, the first thing we can do is supply evidence, um, which hasn't really been done. One thing about the 60s is, you know, when you look at the way it's been taught, it kind of, it's a period of psychedelic drugs and it's taught that way too, if you know what I mean. It, you know, it's kind of collage-like. If you're looking in a textbook, a high school textbook, there'll be, I don't know, there'll be marijuana, there'll be napalm in Vietnam, there'll be a picture of Woodstock, there'll be a picture of Lyndon Johnson signing a bill very, very sincerely and seriously with his brow wrinkled. It won't even be a chronological story. It will be a breakdown into the experiential and the thematic. If you remembered the 60s, you didn't live them, right? And that is a disservice to history because there was a certain chronology and evolution, say, to, to trace the shifts in the Supreme Court that explains much but there's an abdication in particular when it comes to the instruction of the 60s. And, uh, you know, the war, too, like you, again, if this is a stage set where Moynihan is talking on the stage like a Shakespeare character, what's in the background? Rumble, rumble, the Vietnam War. Rumble, 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 the rumble gets closer, the rumble goes away. And why the actors on the stage behave as they do has a lot to do with that war behind the stage. So if you had to summarize then, the effects of the great society. So would, would it be that it kind of entrenched this idea that in evaluating government policy, we look at intentions and inputs. They spent a lot of money and doggone it, the name of the act sounded really good. And, and then we just move on to the next problem. And it turns out that they didn't really solve that problem or they entrenched people in very, very undesirable situations or they maybe worsened the problem. And now we've got, uh, it just seems an endless series of obligations now that shows no sign of letting up. Is that more or less the critique? Yes, unless, you know, what you could do, it, yes, because I do believe that, um, I believe in reason and I believe in the capacity of people to learn and to form their own opinions. Um, you could, I don't know, write a book and itemize the features of 
proposals current by various political candidates and relate them directly because it's striking to proposals from the period. You started to do that with education spending in Senator Warren. There's a huge push for guaranteed income. Um, the, currently, we had that then, and we basically uh, saw what was wrong with it. Even Moynihan said um, of some guaranteed income experiment pilots that did occur. Boy, were we wrong, because it turns out, said Moynihan, people didn't want to work when they were paid a lot to stay home. You know, you could itemize those, and that would be another book, and I would like to read it, and I would respect it. But history has something chancy about it, as a UK historian said. A lot of this is accidents. Good people did wrong things, not really knowing. And that serendipity is part of life. The And I, I wanted to capture that. One part of the book that is very different um, from other histories of the period, which tend to be pretty morose, is I everyone wants a great society. The only question, Tom, is, is it a public sector that we use to get to the great society? Or do we try to get a great society through the private sector? And there are three companies that run throughout the book, General Electric, Toyota, and Fairchild, which became Intel, the chip maker, were in their ways doing a lot of great, quote unquote, things through the private sector. And maybe the lesson of the period to me it is, is that the private sector is going to be more likely to get us to great. One example is Fairchild, which the, the company of the chips that became Intel, decided wanted to help Native Americans. Well, so did the federal government. That was certainly part of the Great Society. But what Fairchild did was it found a reservation and hired the women there to make chips. They were good with their hands. They did very fine needlework, and Fairchild figured that out. It was in New Mexico. And this factory of Native American women and men eventually became the greatest single employer in the private sector of Native Americans. I would say working at a Fairchild factory might be better than working at a casino in terms of uh, speaking if your child comes to you and tells you about the options of the two jobs. So did anyone hear about it? No. Could Fairchild have employed every Native American in the United States? Apparently, because we have so many people in chips today and overseas, but that kind of story was ignored so I believe in the private sector much more and that it can get us to great. So that's kind of a message of the book, too. Um, before I let you go, you, of course, wrote a book on Calvin Coolidge, and you are chairman of the Coolidge Foundation. Tell us about that. Well, the Coolidge Foundation is really an educational foundation. 30, his number is 30, Calvin, was a wonderful president, often maligned. I would say uh, his stock price relative to his value, th those are misaligned. Um, and that's always a temptation for an investor, whether a cash investor or an intellectual investor. So I saw that Coolidge's rating, which is low, bottom half of the president's, was so far from his value that I was attracted, just like you'd be attracted to to make money in, in business arbitrage. Um, he's a wonderful man. He stood for civics. He stood for markets. He stood for religion. He was a person of faith. Um, he said, men do not make laws, they do, but discover them. He stood for states' rights. He spoke in a rather homiletic fashion. He spoke like a sermon because he'd heard a lot of them. And he was friendly to blacks. He was friendly to immigrants, though he did believe in restriction of new immigration. So what a character and what an unusual model of president. Um, he was much closer to 
anyway, so we, we try to educate about Coolidge at the Coolidge Foundation, and the main way we do it is through a scholarship of, for academic merit that honors Coolidge. And every candidate uh, for the Coolidge writes two essays about Calvin Coolidge. So uh, in that way, we have thousands of kids writing about Calvin Coolidge, so at least they can get acquainted with him because, unfortunately, Coolidge is not taught in secondary school. Well, I'm going to link to the conversation we had about Calvin Coolidge. It seems like an awfully long time ago. I'll link to that on the show notes page. And, of course, to your new book, Great Society, A New History. Link to that also the show notes page. This being episode 1600 will be tomwoods.com slash 1600. Well, best of luck. Uh, continue best of luck with the uh, new book. And thank you very much. Well, congratulations on your strength and growth. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, tomorrow on the program, Ryan Levesque joins us. He is the author of two very, very good books, Ask and Choose. Ask sold hundreds of thousands of copies. I mean, the guy came out of nowhere, and he's really, really smart, and he's got some very, very important insights that I think libertarians in particular should take to heart. So we're going to talk to him. Then next week, it is Bob Murphy Week on The Tom Woods Show. So make sure you have subscribed and that you're on the old Woods email list because all the influential people are. And you can hop on that list while getting a nice free ebook for yourself by going over to aocisrong.com. You get my latest ebook, AOC is Wrong. Actually, I think my latest ebook is The Pentagon Versus the Economy. Yeah, I think I've been lying to you people. Well, I, lying is intentional. This was unintentional. My latest ebook actually is The Pentagon Versus the Economy. So that's another one you can get. You also hop on my list there. Go over to militaryeconomy.com. Why pay for books anymore, right? You, Woods has given them to you for free. Militaryeconomy.com will get you that free ebook, and that'll give you a nice little weekend project. Read that book. All right. See you tomorrow, everybody. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.